This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Vigen Garoyan. He's a professor of religious studies in Orthodox Christianity at the University of Virginia. I spoke with him on February 22, 2007, from the studios of American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in a private recording studio in Charlottesville, Virginia. This interview is included in our show, Restoring the Senses, Gardening and an Orthodox Easter. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. <laughs> You're keeping me out from this beautiful day, too. Yeah, or well, in. you gotta. We, I'm going to keep you for a long conversation, yeah, I, well, so you need to get things working on okay, that end. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Is it a beautiful it's still day? Okay. Oh, it's beautiful out here. We're in the, we're going to be in the sixties today. In the sixties. Yeah, it's almost like spring. It's it's a joke. But it wasn't it bitter cold a week ago? Yes, we had snow on the ground yesterday. It all melted. Wow. Well, we yeah. got up to forty yesterday, which felt tropical here, but now yes, it's well, gone sure. way back down again. It's getting cold. Well, we're getting cold tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. Actually, the front is coming through here this mm-hmm. afternoon. It's supposed to get windy. It's not going to be sixty tomorrow, but it is. Do you have any like <clears throat> Do you have any questions for me about the show or who our listeners are or any Yeah, who are Yes, who are the listeners? Well, there're half a million public radio listeners and yeah. 100,000 podcasters and oh. they're all over the world and um you know, public radio has a certain demographic. People tend to be educated, yeah. they tend to be leaders in their community. Um we have a great range of ages, you know, eighteen to eighty. We have uh-huh. um, all kinds of people. Podcasters subscribe with you. Is that what they do? Yeah. Or well, they get it through iTunes. Get... Um, it's it's on all the. I I don't understand how podcasting works, yeah, but it, you can get it in all the them. all the usual places. Um, uh-huh. Um, and that we just started doing that about six months ago, and we've just had great, tremendous growth. So that so that's exciting. So there are a lot of people, and it's a real range of people. It's people who are <clears throat> deeply devout Christians, Jews, Muslims, uh-huh. um, and people who are agnostic and atheist, and yet yeah, and yet curious and energized by these questions yeah. as well. Weren't you talking about starting this even way back when? I, well. It kind of. You had some sort of project going. At the I was time. doing I an oral remember. history project for the institute, uh, and yeah, that's kind of that's what led to this because I did I about see. fifty conversations over two years, and I had this idea that we could do this on public radio, and uh, it could be intelligent and balanced and and inviting, um, uh, yeah. a, in a way that religious conversation on, in media had had not been. Yes. yes. So, so, so I, when did this start? Actually, um, well, I started. We started doing monthly. We did some pilots in two thousand. We did. Um, we started doing monthly shows two thousand one, two thousand two, and about three years mm. ago, we started as a weekly national show with about I don't know thirty stations, and now we're on almost two hundred stations. Wow! And, yeah, so we're on three times on the weekend in New York City, and. Um, we just got we were on in Washington and when Weta changed their um they they mm-hmm. went to classical music. Yeah. And so we okay. So Okay. Yeah. Over all right. So I'm being told that we need to get to work here. But anyway, okay. it's a it's a but what I you know, it's a very broad and eclectic and diverse audience, but I do um you know, it's one voice at a time, and um, and I'm not. We don't water down 
the depths yes. of traditions and um, yeah. and and so you know I really want to um, let you speak out of your faith and tradition and I know <clears throat> I think that Eastern Orthodoxy will be very new and unfamiliar to many people who are listening and I think that's exciting so yes. um, yeah. I'm quite sure yeah but you um, know the way I want to do it is the Collegeville way where it's embodied through your life story. And I see. real, okay. real yeah, through uh-huh. your experience, not something Well, well good. So you've thought th- this through. And, you I've know, thought you, this you through. Know, I've got three pages you know the of notes. Of the path, huh? yeah, yeah, I've got three. Did you get, I don't know if you got those, those, I did. those little things, and yeah, did you uh, get was, any chance to read them? Yeah, that was great. I mean, we well, were, it seemed, uh, it it seemed logical to give that uh-huh. to you because they are on that theme if you yes. want to move into that theme. So, and I anyway. think, and we will talk about some of that, and I also want to talk about your gardening. So, yeah. Um, should we start, Mitch? Okay. And I, I'm... All right. Oh, it is. Okay. Um, I would like to start uh, with a, a, just a little bit about your family's... Your, the background, um, the religious background of your life, your, your um, roots in this tradition yeah. and your family's roots in this tradition. Well, you know some of that story. My, both... All of my grandparents uh, came from uh, Turkey, Eastern Turkey, mm. uh, the traditional um, historic uh, Western provinces of uh, of Armenia. Um, they all left between uh, roughly 1910 and 19, early 1920s, mostly having to do with uh, um, the breakdown of the Ottoman Empire, World War. One and and uh, the uh, a massacre of uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Armenians, which we regard as um, the first genocide of the twentieth uh, century, and right. which has been in the news lately as well. Yeah. Um, that's they came from from that part of the world. Um, if you were Armenian, you 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 were you were Christian, and you you knew it, uh, <laughs> particularly in a Muslim uh, world, an mm. Islamic world under the Ottoman Empire for so many centuries. Um, and so, with tenacity, uh, um, these ethnic uh, Orthodox came over here, as Armenians as, as well as others from, from Eastern Europe at that period of time that were within the Ottoman Empire. And um, there was no really distinguishing the ethnic identity from the uh, the Christian identity, mm-hmm. um, not necessarily at, at national identity. Nationhood was just emerging in some of these places, but certainly the ethnic identity. And that, when they came over here, as the story goes, and it's pretty well pretty true, the first thing they did was start to uh, uh, form parishes, which were um, the obvious way in which to bring themselves together as a, as a community. Um, Actually, in, in my, my own family's case, um, uh, there was uh, there there are uh, priests in the background, though though um, I, I don't know enough of the history of that. I know that my grand my paternal grandfather's uh, uncle uh, was, if not the first, then the second Armenian priest in Manchester, England, one of the first huh. communities to form in England. I have a book on that community. It's in Armenian. I know <laughs> I've read parts of it. There are pictures of him as well as the uh, altar, and um, that building and structure uh, remains in Manchester. And I, in my trips to England, I've never quite gotten to that building. I know it's mm-hmm. still 
owned by the Armenian community, and it may well be active, at least occasionally uh, still. So there is that background. But I did not grow up in a a strongly religious home. It was imbibed through... uh, through my Armenian, uh, uh, my dual identity, really. But you had a sense, I mean, part of your sense of who you were was that you were Armenian Orthodox Christian. Yes, and part of the sense of who I was was my own father who railed against God for having permitted such things to happen. Mm. Not unusual in first and second generation Armenians right. who fled the uh, Turkish genocide, the Ottoman genocide. So there was there was even that tension of, of faith uh, inside the household and inside the larger family. And it it sounds to me like you kind of rediscovered. Um, I mean, you are now a, a theologian and mm. a, an Armenian Orthodox theologian, and it sounds like you discovered that kind of on your own. As a yeah, in a, in a way, I did, um, but not 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 necessarily so, because there was all the um, manifestations of uh, Armenian Orthodoxy um, in 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 my early life. I mean, the memories of being in a in a church environment was which was so utterly different from um, my ordinary day to day life. Right. The incense, the the. Uh, the images, the 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 the, uh, the chanting, the, even the oratory, the kind of homiletic uh, style, uh, which you know was foreign. Um, I, I I was a com- I was accustomed to it, but I early understood that it was it distinguished distinguished me from others. Um, I I you know if you if if you dig deeper, you find that I had a strong sense of um, a need for asking the question as to who God is, is there a God and who God is, even though I didn't have quite formal instruction. My, we, we moved to Stanford, Connecticut from New Rochelle when I was five. There were no uh, Armenian churches in the um, area. And at that early period in the 1950s, um, Pan-Orthodoxy wasn't really, uh, it mm-hmm. hadn't really quite emerged. And what I, I mean by that is the recognition among all these army, uh, all these ethnic Orthodox communities that they basically share the same faith and that we ought to be visiting each other's churches and be welcoming each other's churches. None of that existed. So that, even though there was a strong Greek community in, in uh, Stanford, I never visited a Greek church. And so I ended up going to a congregational church. Really? Um Yes, my my parents didn't accompany me. Um, <laughs> they just sent me. Mm. Now my father grew up in a in Bridgewater, Massachusetts, where there was no Armenian church too, and he he attended a congregational church, the mm. old church in the middle of the town square, you know, mm. with the tall steeple, the white the white church with the tall steeple. So, <laughs> um, but I but I by by my by the time I was twelve or thirteen or fourteen, I knew this 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 wasn't my faith. Right. This wasn't this wasn't all of it. And it was because I'd end up in Armenian church on Easter and Christmas and other, and other feast days, um, and and I just knew. And um, I was asking deep and profound questions about this. I just, um, I just reserved them. I used to say to myself, um, "Well, I'll grow into this in time as I mature." I, I, I don't know where, quite where I'm headed. Mm. Um, really, uh, this came to a head. Um, 
in in college at the University of Virginia, where I began to attend. I would attend the uh, Pres First Presbyterian Church. I would attend the Greek Orthodox Church. I um, I liked the sermons in the Presbyterian Church. It was a great Calvinist orator in there, right. a, a Dutch war hero, in point of fact. Um, uh, and and went to the Greek Church and began to sort it out there. Right? Okay. Um, yeah. You're now in Lent, right? You yes. Lent started for we you start, on Monday. We start, yes, mm -hmm. that's right. Talk to me about when you think about this time, this season, this liturgical season, Lent, heading into Holy Week and Easter. Um, what mm. memories, what, what, what occurs to you as important and distinctive for you in, in practicing this, that, that, that again, is, is rooted in this Orthodox tradition that you did, in fact, live into? <laughs> yeah. Um, even though I wasn't raised in a, so we say, devoutly uh, Armenian uh, uh, Christian environment, um, we, we did eat the uh, Lenten foods. And while it wasn't formal fasting, it was culturally transmitted to me. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I didn't re receive a whole lot of instruction as to why this was being done and why we were, we were eating the kinds of foods which were uh, um, non-meat and, and uh, oftentimes eggs and, and uh, spinach and other uh, beans, <laughs> sorts of things that I didn't particularly like either. Mm -hmm. um, now, again, as one matures and one begins to ask one's, uh, questions about one's religious background and belonging, um, one tries to make sense of these. And certainly as I look back on it, I realize that um, implicit in all this was a sense of stopping... Um, considering um, what our lives are about, making some sort of sacrifice in, in a way of um, uh, observing um, uh, a very uh, a penitent season in which we re-examine our, ourselves. Um, we didn't keep, we didn't, we didn't keep the uh, rhythm of, of, the, uh, of, of Lent. That is something which uh, I'm in some ways learned. Mm -hmm. um, as I began to read literature and began to attend church services, not only Armenian but other Orthodox church services. And what do you mean when you say the rhythm of Lent? What does that evoke for you? Oh, um, the, the for example, the the, the Sundays uh, um, have a sig significance. Um, in my own tradition, um, for example, the first Sunday would be an observance of the beginnings, creation. Um, and in a sense, through the whole of Lent, you recapitulate um, the story of creation, fall, and, 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 and redemption. Right. Um, th th this, uh, these are circles inside of circles, repetitions inside of repetitions. Um, for example, in the Armenian liturgical calendar, prayers and hymns that accompany readings from the Scripture... Um, there's a kind of eight-day cycle, at least as I've observed it. It's not not been written about, but I I'm actually beginning to write and think An about think and write eight about eight-day cycle. Yes, mm -hmm. well, the eighth day is the, the the day of the new creation. Right. Every 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 Sunday is not only 
the first day, but it's also the eighth day. Um, we break out of the the, the temporal uh, week, mm-hmm. seven days, and um, break into the, the the new creation, which is on the eighth day, which is the day of the resurrection. Hmm. Um, and what does so, that mean? So, I mean, is that a state of mind? Is it? Is it? It's a way you move through time differently? Absolutely, that's the mm-hmm. way I move through time. So the beginning and the end are connected w- with one another. Um, not simply, but it's not simply intellectual. It's, mm-hmm. it's uh, bodily. It's, uh, um, yeah, it's a rhythm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's another way of counting. It's, it's another a way of living through uh, time that um, is very alien to our culture right. at present, it seems to me. Um, it's totally radical in that sense. I think, um, you know, when you say that a lot of your sense of orthodox theology that you later turned into practices was, was transmitted by, um, by food or, um, just by, by experience rather than ideas, Mm. it it seems to me that that's also very true of, an orthodox sensibility in in contrast to maybe a Protestant or Catholic Christian sensibility. I mean, symbols are very important to you. And just as you just said about a sense of time, our culture doesn't quite know what to do with symbols. Well, let me go back to, to what I was getting at with yeah. regard to Lent and the, the very end of, uh, you know, the mm-hmm. Lenten season, Palm Sunday. In the Armenian church... Uh, what is the the entrance of and and this is this is true of the early church. Uh, uh, you see this in the church fathers, the patristic writings, and and in the ancient liturgies. Um, in in the Armenian church, is quite explicitly the entrance of Christ into Jerusalem is a foreshadowing of and in some sense really uh, the second coming of Christ. Also, so on Sunday. On Palm Sunday, you have the second coming remembered. On on Resurrection Sunday, on Easter, you have readings uh, the night before and uh, uh, Easter Eve of the creation, the Genesis story. So it's kind of moving <laughs> backward in time as yeah. well as forward. Yes, we remember the resurrection. I mean, in fact, in the liturgies, you have that. You rem- you remember the second coming. Uh, and it's 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 articulated that way in the ancient liturgies and in the orthodox liturgies that we remember the second coming as is, as if it has happened. Well, it has in some sense, which then makes in, a in, new in the, in the return. incarnation and Christ event, mm-hmm. which then makes yes. a different kind of celebration and return to the beginning possible. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yes, mm-hmm. but it also we're talking about contrast. It also contrasts with sort of arguments uh, within Protestantism over postmillennialism and premillennialism. When does the Christ return? Right before the millennium or after the millennium, which is a which is a totally historical, temporally sequential uh, ex, uh, expectation. Mm-hmm. It's it's the within within Orthodox liturgies. The apocalypse, the second coming, are inside the liturgies themselves. They're inside of every Sunday uh, service. So this is all this drama of of salvation, of incarnation, of resurrection is of of creation, in fact, and the second coming is all happening all the time. Right now, 
right this moment, mm-hmm. uh, precisely. I mean, it, when we're when we're within the liturgical service, it is happening, um, and and that 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 experience is is going to uh, form a, a way of seeing the world and right. going through the world, which walking is, back out into the world out of that sanctuary, out of yes. that liturgy. Yeah, and this is so foreign, right? I mean, in terms to our culture, and even to um, the way Christianity has infused American culture. It's a different way of oh, being Christian. Of course, it, of mm-hmm. course, it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I, can, I can get into all kinds of things that are happening in the culture, even within American religious culture, which um, would contrast with the way or, or the Orthodox would read the Bible and ex- experience uh, the Christian life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk talk a little bit about that, about how you would read the Bible and experience the Christian life. Well, for example, um, I'm not particularly interested in 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 um, in conflating, correlating um, a reading of the Genesis account of creation with with the latest scientific theory. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it is science. I I I, I think of the uh, the first chapter of Genesis as a divine lit as a divine litany. Um, something something is happening, and then God says, as a respondent, he takes the, both the role of of liturgist and respondent. Hmm. He says, "This is good," or "This is beautiful." Actually, the Hebrew word tob could mean either good or beautiful, and the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was the uh, Old Testament of the early church, mm-hmm. translates it beautiful in the Greek, not good. So God saw what He had made those passages, and it was and as it's as and then God says, "This is beautiful." That's the response. Mm -hmm. So, in in a sense, God is singing creation into existence. I think Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, caught. I think C.S. Lewis caught this, um, had 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 his own deep sense of this, when he wrote the magician's nephew, in which Aslan, the great lion, the great god uh, lion, sings the creation uh, of Narnia. Hmm. Uh, brings Narnia into existence liturgically in him in song. Um, it it just seems to me that that um, that way of understanding creation um, is 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 different. Mm-hmm. It, it is different, and and simply would. Um... It means that uh, that the song never ends. Hmm. The creating never ends. After all, you read in the Book of Revelation. That there that 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 the liturgy of creation is still going on, but it's of the new creation, mm-hmm. and words have been added to the song, but it's still the song, and 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 think about throughout the Old Testament, from from Genesis through the prophets, um, the creation itself is is really depicted as as a great temple in which uh, worship is to be done, God. God uh, sets the foundations. God stretches the heavens as a canopy. Mm. God seats himself in the throne on and uh, all of that. And and we're 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 here to to uh to make this the song of creation, the liturgy of creation and and new creation um manifest, visible, audible in the world. And again, those are very much, as you've been saying, <clears throat> those themes are also are very much at the heart of 
of this time of year, of the Easter celebration. And, but, okay, and I know, <laughs> and I yeah. know that for you, none of this is abstraction, right? Um, no. literature- none of it's abstraction. If you're talking about the Christ event, look, you look at the Gospel of John, the mm-hmm. first chapter, first chapter or so. That's a recapitulation of the seven days of creation. If you look at it, you, you see that there's certain on the. I, I believe it's the. Is it the seventh day on which which the wedding feast occurs? Um, you can count that out. I mean, it, 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 John, John is recapitulating the Genesis, but also he says that 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 uh, the word um, tabernacles among us. He becomes the temple in which we worship and through which we worship. So. So that that what I was saying about the temple in the Old Testament mm-hmm. is carried over into the New Testament and is carried over into the hymns and prayers of the the, the Orthodox Church. Right. I'm it, not making it up. No, and and it is that that everything everything is contained in in worship and sacrament. I mean you you've used a phrase that the utter realism of the sacramental action for you. I think that that also for you is is embodied in um, in um, aspects of of liturgy and worship, uh, and I, I mean, I'd like for you to talk to me about about you know some of these huge ideas that in fact happen for you in worship. Um, I well, think icons me... are one example of that. But I, I don't know. Talk to me at, about how that this is all embodied and. Um, something yeah. which, in fact, you do work with and live with. Well, you want, I, I suppose you want me to talk about icons, and, and um, in, 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 in my writing, uh, certainly, um, you'll find that I do theology uh, differently uh, than uh, uh, Protestants, uh, certainly, but even m- most Roman Catholics. Uh, in Roman Catholicism, liturgics, or liturgical theology is separated off from moral theology, is separated off from um, dogmatic theology in a way that they, they don't relate mm-hmm. as readily as in orthodox theology. So that when, I do the, when I'm speaking theologically or writing theologically, I'm not simply reflecting on um, uh, discursive prose or systematic formulations of the faith by great theologians, but also on the hymns and on the images themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's and an within... experience that's going to be had by every worshiper as well, right? Absolutely, Not just because... in a theological academy. Yes, because um, because quite quite clearly, uh, if you begin to look at the Orthodox liturgies. And rites, and I don't just mean the Eucharistic liturgy, but but the sacraments and the feasts, uh, the feast days, and so forth and so on. Um, the, the hymns and prayers uh, correlate with the images that are in the church, mm-hmm. the the iconography that's in the church. Now, I must say that in my own tradition, the iconography can be rather sparse. We don't have an iconostasis in the Armenian Church the way the Byzantines, the Greeks, the Russians, the Romanians, etc. And do translate at the front that of the altar. for someone who hasn't heard of iconostasis. Well, it, it, in, 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 in most of Orthodoxy, um, you have a, a screen or a wall uh, um, 
that stands in front of the 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 the, the, the altar, which is in the back of that screen, and you can see through through a door. Sometimes you can see through; it's half partly transparent. It depends on 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 the way this has been built. But you have you have images certainly of you're going to have essentially you're going to absolutely have to have uh, an image of Christ. Um, you're going to have to have an image of the, the Holy Mother of God, uh, uh, the Theotokos. You're going to have to have an image of John the Baptist, an image of, of, of the saint uh, uh, whose name is given to, to this church. You're going to have to have, and then beyond that, you're going to have to have images of other saints and uh, even scenes from from the Bible, uh, also uh, icons that represent certain feasts, for example, uh, um, on, uh, we don't we don't uh, have a resurrection icon where uh, Jesus is emerging from the tomb, sort of flying in the air, um, because there's no description of that uh, scripturally. What we have are are two icons. One is the icon of Christ's descent into Hades or hell, bringing Adam and Eve and all the saints out of the the of, of Sheol, out of the realm of the dead, into the new heaven. Uh, on Saturday, and we have an image of uh, the empty tomb with the visitation of the women coming mm. with the mirror or the oil mm. um, on, 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 on Sunday, on Easter uh, Sunday morning. Now, that's the, if, if, if it's Easter, um, there's going to be a focus and attention upon those icons within the church, and they may be at the very front of the church in the iconostasis, the screen or wall, or they may be in other locations, in the ceiling, on the on the sides of this church, um, yes. But and so, and, so, talk to me about why, for you, those icons are important. What they do? Um, well, because 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 we human beings uh, are not simply uh, visually uh, are not simply auto, uh, uh, oriented by one sense or two senses. Mm-hmm. They're 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 oriented by several senses, and so so uh, uh, in order. For uh, the human being to be wholly engaged, um, all of those senses ought to ought 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 to be at work. Um, and in some sense, one of the jobs of a Christian is to to in in point of fact uh, hone the senses, reform the senses, hmm. make them holy, and that process can take place within a church certainly, where everything is focused on God. So that the incense it, it appeals to the sense of smell. Whole bodies involved: mm-hmm. the kneeling, the self, the prostration on the ground, on 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 the floor, uh, the the, uh, the the images that one sees, uh, the songs that one hears, etc. Mm-hmm. And 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 that engages the whole human being. Well, that's consistent with the Christian belief in the bodily resurrection. Mm-hmm. The whole self, not just some disincarnate soul. Um, and and I also I have to say that something that I've and you know the liturgies are so beautiful, the music is so beautiful. That's something anyone can hear and feel um, exalted by. I think you know icons and incense are something that can be um, that one needs to attune oneself to, perhaps. <clears throat> um, Something I've always been intrigued by, though, in my conversations with Orthodox Christians is um, how these lofty, uh, that, that this um, 
this attunement to to the senses is is also very earthy, also has a very earthy side. It's not all just about gorgeous images in worship. And, you know, I just, I wanted to read this passage that you quoted um, in your book, uh, Incarnate Love, which of course is a central theme of the Easter story. And, you know, the example you use of talking about this is is how it was articulated in by Dostoevsky's Ivan Karamazov, right? Mm, and yes. you wrote, you know, the quote is, and, and you know, this is one of this is one of the ways that you also think about the meaning of these large, a large concept, incarnate love. Um, he said, Aloysia, my boy, so I want to live and go on living, even if it's contrary to the rules of logic, even if I do not believe in the divine order of things. The sticky young leaves emerging from their buds in the spring are dear to my heart. So is the blue sky, and so are some human beings, even though I often don't know why I like them. I'll get drunk on my own emotion. I love these sticky little <clears throat> I love these sticky little leaves and the blue sky. That's what you don't love those things with reason, with logic, you love them with your innards, with your belly. <laughs> yes. And of course the irony, which is, is so often uh, a device used by Dostoevsky, is that the principal atheist who's rebelling against God in the novel is articulating precisely um what the Christian experience is or ought to be. Hmm. <laughs> so there's an iron. There's an irony there, and the question is whether uh, how much Yvonne actually believes that. Uh, it, it, but but yes, absolutely. He's speaking a truth. You're saying there. he feels it, whether he under whether he would articulate it in that way. Yes. Well, uh, yeah. That's that's a, a beautiful rant. I believe he's also. Um, glossing a poem by is it Schiller there mm. the sticky little leaves but right. but unquestionably there are several levels to that to that dis, to that la- language and and speech by Yvonne but but one level certainly is Dostoevsky is presenting us with an image of 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 religious experience uh, which which is orthodox mm-hmm. or, or mm. Russian you would say Russian but <laughs> you would say orthodox yes <laughs> um. You have you have suggested as a theologian that one distinction between um, a a Western Christian faith and an Eastern Christian faith, and, uh, particularly around themes of of Holy Week and Easter, is that in Western Christianity there is what you call a therapeutic vision of salvation. Uh, no, sorry. In Western Christianity, there's a juridical metaphor for salvation, but in Eastern Christian faith, there's a therapeutic vision of salvation. Now, translate that into lay terms and tell me why that's important to you. Well, uh, the, the, uh, there, are, there are a number of images or metaphors through which the gospel writers, St. Paul and uh, the early church fathers and mothers, uh, try to come to terms with that mystery, which is salvation, uh, our atonement through Christ, um, and uh, our, our uh, uh, the gift of immortal life that is given to us by God. Um, in the West, particularly from the late Middle Ages on, there begins to become predominant one metaphor. Um, it can be in various forms, but it is the juridical metaphor. The simple notion that um, uh, 
here's how salvation or redemption is accomplished, that that a great offense was done by, by Adam, uh, so great an offense uh, that it requires that no human being could possi- possibly compensate for it or, or, or pay the penalty mm-hmm. uh, for that offense, um, that it would have to be the God-man or, or Jesus Christ, the Word in, incarnate, who would perform this um, act uh, and, and, and meet the demands uh, that are are formulated in almost virtually legal terms. Um, pay the price, pay the debt, whether to God or the devil. Um, now, uh, th- that certainly is 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 a metaphor that uh, is in Scripture and uh, appears throughout Christian history, Christian thought, in liturgy, and so forth. But it's certainly not the only metaphor. There's Christ, the Good Shepherd. Um, there's and there's also Christ the physician. Mm-hmm. Now in the East, um, these metaphors. There's less attempt to sort these metaphors out. Um, the systematic impulses of certain Western theologies don't belong to the East, um, and particularly because the hymns dominate so much. And within hymn, within within hymn, hymnography, within prayers, within poetry. You you can get you can get away with 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 a variety of metaphors, right. um, and 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 in point of fact, um, um, they enrich um, uh, the poetry or the hymns, and 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 so I think that's one way of accounting for the fact that the Orthodox have not tried to separate separate out these these metaphors. Well, anyway, there is a, a metaphor in the East which I think is more at the center of the, uh, the orthodox understanding of what happens. And it's not simply forensic or legal in the sense, forensic by which I mean God's disposition toward us is changed by that act of that one holy one who who who, who sacrifices himself for the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus on the cross. Yeah, but that it's a physical, a physicalist interpretation that Christ... Uh, uh, assumes our whole humanity, our whole human nature, and restores it to um, to, to uh, a, a state in which it can grow into holiness without obstruction. Mm. And in fact, he, he makes it holy himself in his own self um, by the kind of life he lives and and by by the uh, death that he dies and his resurrection again after three days. So th- this is a, a metaphor which I would, I, I've also called the therapeutic metaphor. Mm-hmm. There's a divine therapy in salvation. Uh, through Christ, we are restored to wholeness. Uh, not necessarily the state uh, that Adam and Eve were in, in the garden before they fell, but something like that. Certainly, in the Eastern tradition, uh, um, to be contrasted, say, with certain Augustinian uh, 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 theologies in the West, the East does not regard Adam and Eve as perfect in the Garden, okay, but potentially perfect. Okay. Uh, but they are unfallen, and they are without sin, and um, they can therefore grow into perfection as God has intended them to. So you know, we're back to that. Potentiality. We have that potentiality again in Christ. We've been healed. Mm. Our wounded body has been healed. Mm. Our senses have been restored uh, uh, to, 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 
to be in uh, tune with and in harmony with God's purposes. And, and I think that that also leads into another very important distinction that you draw between Eastern and between Western Christianity and your experience and understanding of Eastern Christianity, that the resurrection um, shines through the crucifixion. It's true that in there are words like ransom, right, uh, that yes. we associate with this with these Easter images, with the cross um, and the blood of Christ. Um, and, um, you know, I grew up Southern Baptist. There's so much of that imagery. Oh, yes. Right? Of course. Yeah. Um, of the price he paid. And, his blood and so forth. Yes, yes. it's very—and and that was also— you know, you've spoken about the about Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, which focused very much on that kind of blood and gore of of the Easter story. Yes, yes. Um, and and the point you're making is not that that's not important, but that that resurrection is a theme that that frames um, your understanding, your liturgical experience of the crucifixion at Easter. Is is that is that fair? Yes, um, um, I believe you're. Uh, you know, you're re- referring to an, an essay that I uh, was, uh, right. Um, I've, 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 I gave you in manuscript, mm-hmm. which will become part of a book um, uh, very soon. Um, but I've spoken about it in other places and written about it in, in other places, which is the kind of uh, images of the crucifixion uh, that uh, are normative in the East and were in the West up until again, the late Middle Ages, running into the Reformation. And the early uh, iconography of the crucifixion, of which we have few examples, although it gets, it it, it repeats itself uh, in my tradition, maybe more than even in the Byzantine on occasion. Um, Christ is on the cross and he's virtually standing upright and his arms are straight out um, on the cross. And... um, his eyes may even be open. The wounds, if they're there, are merely puncture wounds. Um, what is that but to represent the victory uh, on the cross? Uh, but also, um, within that image is the resurrection, because um, the Gospels are are, are, uh, are written from the standpoint of the resurrections. If they had been written as a journal, they wouldn't look the same, would they? Because... because uh, the, the the disciples uh, did not even believe and did not want to even hear Christ when he said that I, I must die and 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 be resurrected in, in in three days, and when the event actually happened, they all fled. Right. <laughs> so the early church was not so much concerned with realism or naturalism. Naturalism is a better term. Christian realism, I think you could describe it as Christian real. The reality is. That this was the this was uh, the the Son of God, holy divine, who became human, and would exhaust death on the cross. The victory is won on the cross, and the resurrection, in the early iconography, wants to emphasize that in such a way that you only you would have to say that that this iconography is done from, from the point of view of the resurrection. Uh, Resurrection and the resurrection shines through it, so that even his eyes are open. Mm-hmm. Now, there's some iconography like that, which is even more dramatic. Um, and um, I have instances of it in the Armenian Church, where the traditional 
uh, skull of Adam, because legend has it that Christ was crucified in the very same place that Adam was buried. Hmm. That skull you'll see uh, in traditional iconography, east and west, um, and sometimes the blood is dripping on it. Uh, that blood will restore us to, uh, we who live in the old Adam at this moment perhaps, uh, to life. But but there's iconography in which the eyes of, of that skull are, are opened, uh, are open as are the eyes of Christ, which is not not the kind of uh, images of of the crucifixion which we're we're used to seeing. Where we uh, dwell on presently. the agony and the horror. Absolutely. And the death. Now, now even even when the agony was was taken up in later iconography, um, Christ he may have his eyes closed. He may be sagging. Uh, they may be sagging, but it's not uh, gory. And you have a sense that there's a sleep there, and that there 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 is a kind of peace there, a promise of. Uh, and the resurrection still shines through that. Um, when you get to later Western iconography and paintings and images of Christ, that the, the, the move to naturalism forgets all of that theology. Mm-hmm. What? And I think uh, 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 Gibson's, Gibson's crucifixion um, is an example of that. Uh, uh, I called it a I called it a, uh, what did I call it, a kind of moving iconography. Right, and you yeah. you suggested that when you saw Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, you would have given it a different ending and a different beginning. And I think that those are consonant with this different theology of the Easter story that yes, you're presenting. Yes, I would have begun with the... With with a post resurrection account of the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and, and 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 Christ encounters them and that they don't recognize him until they they essentially break bread with him and eat eat with him because for um, you you only you think that the only that we only should retell that story or want to retell the story of of the suffering um, with the resurrection in mind first is that what you're saying. Yes, um, that and also um, uh, my objection in the case of yeah, Gibson's film was is I, I found the, the resurrection scene. First of all, you wouldn't have such uh, iconography in the East, uh, although there are examples of it um, late, very late, mm-hmm. but it's not normative of sort of uh, either Jesus sort of flying out of the tomb or what Gibson did uh where where you sort of see uh, see part of his body and you're reminded that um he's come back to life it was in my in my eyes quite surreal joltingly in contrast with uh, the naturalism of the crucifixion scene and uh, i found it disconcerting and unbelievable um if you had left that scene out of the movie um what would you have been left with but a man who died on a cross Big heart died for all of us somehow or other, but I don't know that the resurrection would have uh, been in our minds. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's why I would have told it quite differently. I mm-hmm. would have had the last scene be Christ on the cross um, saying it is finished because it is finished. But it's but what kind of finish is it? It's not finished on the cross per se. Uh, there's the resurrection that is happening on the cross as well. So. Right, um, right. It would For, it would be mm-hmm. appropriate to end with it is finished, and and we wouldn't have just just a tragic hero dying. You know the story, uh, the Emmaus story, and the 
the appearances of Jesus, um, often physically not recognizable, at least for a while, to the people he's encountering yes. after the resurrection. I've, I think that you do um, consider those to be an important part of the Easter story, and it has always intrigued me since I did since I did my study of theology and the Bible that that those intriguing and very mysterious um, post-resurrection stories are not more a part of the um, the narrative that's told and commemorated. Yes, well, uh, it ought to be. Uh, another point I made about Gibson's movie, since many who listen will be familiar with that movie, is uh, what I liked, one of the things I liked about it was the images, uh, the repeated imagery of the the Last Supper. Um, but the Last Supper isn't just about a sacrifice. It's also about the resurrection. You remember, and even you remember the Second Coming, as I spoke about earlier. Um, the, a number of those scenes, including the one we've spoken of, the Road to Emmaus, is Eucharistic in character. Um, what do when you mean do by the, that? Well, the disciples recognize Jesus when they're having a meal with when him. When they break bread. Mm-hmm. When they break bread, in effect. Um, that's why I thought the movie would have been so much more powerful if if, if that had been the the start of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the Eucharistic imagery, which is quite, I like, it's well, well done, it seems to me, within the Gibson movie, as I recall it, would have had a connective with the very beginning and the very end that that would have been so much more powerful. That's where we meet Christ. And recognize him, and 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 in point of fact, um, uh, you know, people say, "Well, you, would you would you believe that if Christ came again uh, tomorrow and and appeared on Main Street, would you uh, recognize him or believe him? Only if you broke bread with him. Hmm. Hmm. Only if you keep breaking bread. Only if you keep keep the liturgy." Hmm. I would like to talk about your garden. Because it seems to me that in in the writing you've done about gardening, um, that is a place where many of these themes, um, if you will, <laughs> become three dimensional. You know, or take yes. on flesh. Yeah. And it's my um, favorite writing. It's your favorite writing, and oh, it's beautiful it writing. It's wonderful right. writing. Um, and it, you know, and I think for you, and this does come from your orthodox perspective. The 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 story of Adam, the beginning of humanity in the garden, and the story of Easter are absolutely interwoven. Again, I don't think that that's something that um, Western Christians or our culture necessarily see or take for granted. Um, so just, I mean, talk to me. Let's start talking about um, what you do in your garden, what you learn from your garden, the... Um, the insights that come to you there that also, again, illustrate and kind of bring down to earth some of this theology? Well, that's a whole... It's a huge yeah. question. Where, you a know, huge where quest- would you start? Well, well, I would start by saying, and, and this among some uh, Christian communities would not only sound strange but perhaps heretical, but it certainly belongs to the imagination of the early church and my own church, is that they're in, almost, they're all in, in sense two scriptures... There is the written scripture, and um, that's at the very heart of the church. But there's also the imprint of God on his 
creation and the fact that were not God constantly willing his creation, loving his creation into existence, it would disappear. Um, in a real sense, cre creation is this. It is the, the love, the will, the love, the imagination of God taking on existence and form. God stops willing. God stops loving. We disappear, in my view. Um, that, that we're on that, that we're on the head of a pin in, in that mm. sense. And that, um, and 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 the creation, uh, the creative act of God, if you like, never never ends. Is constant. We live inside of God's own eternity, though we count the days. Um, and it seems to me that when you are in your garden, you you feel yourself inside. Both, both eter eternity yeah. and the tem and and temporal existence. Um, oh, it was. It wasn't long ago that my my son, who's recently gotten married to a young woman from Armenia, remarkable, <laughs> third, fourth, whatever you want to call it, marrying someone right from Armenia. They they met on ArmenianSingles.com or whatever it's called. Really? Yes, <laughs> while she was here studying, and a two year romance over across oceans and great continents. But um. They, they 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 were leaving one evening from our home in in um in Culpeper and we live still in the country so that there aren't too many lights and they looked up at the sky and they live in Baltimore right down Baltimore city and in, inside of Baltimore city and she commented uh Hasmi commented uh my word you you can you can see the you can see the stars you can see the heavens uh, here and we were all just staring up at that canopy up there, you know. Mm. Um, uh, people don't look up anymore. They don't have time. They sit in cars you can't see up. Right. Unless you have your top down. That's why I have a Jeep. Um, so I can do that at least nine months, seven or eight months out of the year. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 that whole, uh, the whole, the whole, taking in the whole of it. Um, permitting oneself to exercise one's senses again, you know. Right. Well, we drive on a highway, um, but what is it? It's, it's it, uh, We're on a conveyor belt, and we're not allowed to see much either. It gets even worse now because they put up these these walls so that the sound doesn't go get get from the highway to people's homes. Mm. So what do we see? I mean, that might be a metaphor of uh, modern life. Well, certainly that second scripture I'm talking about has been shut out from us. Hmm. No, we've shut it out in ways that gardening opens up. Uh, I, I just, I just, uh, I'm grateful that um, I can garden. <laughs> now, I, I, in one of the pieces in, in the fragrance of God called the, the Temple Transparent, I think I, I work those metaphors up and in just the way that I was explaining earlier on about the Old Testament, sort of presenting the whole creation as a temple that God has set up for us. Right. And that you and, really and experience it that way. I really experience. I really experienced mm -hmm. it, walking down that path, which I call my Wordsworthian walk, <laughs> down toward Hungry Run, the stream, down at the bottom of my property, and just the bluest sky in December, and being able to see... The trees reminding me of Gothic, you know, the Gothic arches. The um, I felt as if I was in a great cathedral for a moment there. Hmm. And um, look, you, you you don't you, there there the images 
a play in our minds and in our imagination. We don't have certain images. We're not going to see things uh, that way. I mean, if if if, right. if I wasn't reading the text, if I wasn't I wasn't immersed in scripture as well, I wouldn't experience it that way. The, nature and scripture interpret one another. Okay, they're a diptych. <clears throat> I also say in my first book, Inheriting Paradise, that I learned more about my faith maybe uh, uh, in the garden than I did in the church. Mm -hmm. um, I was accenting something that occurs to me. I, I, it may be hyperbole, but there's a certain truth in what I said about, about myself when I said that. I mean, here's something that, again, I think points to your... Orthodox sensibility. You you said you believe that smell, not sight, is the most mystical sense, and the garden is one place that um, that affirms that belief in you. Yes. Talk about that. Oh. <laughs> well, again, maybe a bit of hyperbole, but but certainly I think defensible. Um, um, seeing is so easy, um, and you know, if I'd seen the resurrection. Or if I'd seen this, or if I'd seen that, I'd really believe, you know. Um, we don't say if I'd smelled it. <laughs> Smell keeps the mystery. It reveals the mystery, but it doesn't fool us into thinking that we would, we would believe in it or explain it if only we could smell it. Hmm. And, it, and, it and it comes to, to us with surprise, doesn't it? Mm. Now, I suppose my dogs wouldn't feel the same way. They probably wouldn't describe that as the most mystical sense. Um, maybe sight is. <laughs> for them. For them. Well, because but they us, live there's... more practically with their sense of smell, don't they? Yes, absolutely. Um, so so th there it is. I mean, I'm walking in my garden, and all of a sudden, overnight, something has bloomed. Maybe the honeysuckle. Oh, maybe the, maybe the, the ragosa roses. Um or maybe it's it's or maybe it's it's just the cabbage in the vegetable garden um and it surprises me and and I don't even see it but I know it's present I feel its presence no I I smell its presence I I I'm aware of it well for many of us that's an experience like that of experiencing God in prayer mm. You know, you wrote in one place, much like the rose I sensed in the nursery, God is mysteriously present in our lives. Although I had forgotten the scent and the rose was out of view, its fragrance awakened me to its presence. We may not see God face to face or tangibly experience him in other ways. Nonetheless, he avails himself to us as he did to Adam and Eve in the garden. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Adam and Eve in the gardens, the, their senses were, were fresh. Not adulterated. Um, that's the way I read read pre-fall in human existence, shall we say. There's existence in the garden, in, in paradise. And I think it is so interesting that you experience yourself there in your garden. I mean, this metaphor or this, this story of paradise and of... Um, well, the freight, you know, you titled your first book about your garden, Inheriting Paradise. But yes. in your garden, that whole story becomes real to you. Yes, and, and, and in Inheriting Paradise, uh, the narrative is, is kept up uh, um, in so much as uh, I, I, I uh, write these pieces on uh, important feast days of the church 
and sort of uh, take you through the uh, calendar, the church, the church mm-hmm. calendar, the the church year, so that um, the narrative is inside of the pieces and also belongs to the in, in, in entire uh, ensemble of of uh, what I've written there. Yeah, narrative is um, narrative is very important. I've gr- gr- grown uh, uh, to appreciate the, the value of it more. Uh, as I've aged, because um, one looks back on one's life, and we inevitably um, we inevitably uh, think in terms of narrative. There's something fundamental ab- mm-hmm. about that, yeah. And it, it it is in the Orthodox liturgies. I know that you know, one one time the well-known um, Protestant Methodist uh, theologian uh, Stanley uh, Hauerwas, when so-called narrative theology was very big back 10, 15 years ago, said to me, he said, Vigan, you don't have to do narrative theology. It's it's in your liturgy. It's mm-hmm. in your worship. Right. It's in your prayers. Right. We, we Protestants, uh, we, we've got to try to recover it. We, we've forgotten how to tell stories, but you're telling it every day in worship. Mm-hmm. But talk to me just in a basic way about how mm, your love of your garden and all the time you you've spent there over the years and what it the central place it has in your life you know how that makes you think differently about this idea of paradise and the fall yes well <laughs> i've probably run wild with metaphors uh but but uh, you know that's kind of who you are that's okay <laughs> yeah yeah and um I get misunderstood a lot. <laughs> Be very careful what metaphors you use these right. days. Um, we're we're really pr- quite deaf to metaphors in this in this culture. I mean, um, newsprint um, and and uh, news conferences and so forth uh, don't have much much use for metaphors. It's left to rural folk to to, st- to still keep up the metaphors. Okay. Um, look. Uh, uh, when I when I get into the garden uh, in the spring and I'm getting ready for it here, it comes it comes pretty early in 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 central Virginia. Um, what what am I doing? I'm, I'm uh, during Lent in particular. I'm 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 digging out weeds that have died. I've, I'm I'm cleaning out the garden. Uh, it's it's a messy business and it's not not terribly pleasant. But what is the reward for that? You know, hmm. well, the sacrifice is, is is more than worth it. And in the process of of, of doing this uh, task, which um, one one would rather avoid on certain days, in particular when the weather isn't so great, perhaps, um, in the task of the very doing it, my senses are being brought alive. Right. And, um, right. And that that means that I'm going to my experience of. I'm 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 uh, tuning my body. I'm 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 cleansing my soul. I'm making myself ready to to receive the gift. Mm. Um, And it may be in the first blossom of a peony. You know, (laughs) what a wonderful flower! (laughs) They don't last very long, uh, but when they're there, they're something else, Mm. and they just pop up out of nowhere. There's a little bud, and all of a sudden, it's huge, hmm. enormous, beautiful fragrance. Yeah. Hmm. Um, the the problem there is is that you, the peonies don't take a whole lot of uh, care. They don't need a whole lot of care, so that's probably not the the the, the, the flower to choose. Okay, choose but another you get one. The point. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I get the point. <laughs> well, yeah, I think true. Anybody who who raises roses now, I um, particularly those who would who actually do cultivated tea roses, which which in in this climate where I am, I just avoid. I I use the old fashioned roses, the Ragosa roses, going back to the earliest earliest rose, really, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which 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 is on the cover of the Fragrance of God. Um, right. Rosa Gallica officinalis, the apothecary rose. It was in the monast- monastic gardens, wow. the hip that grows out of it, you know, and so forth. But yeah, uh, certain certain flowers are are better for that for that metaphor. Okay, I think I didn't do this when we started talking about your garden, but I think I'd like for you to just tell me about it. Um, just kind of walk me through it, visual, in words, if you would. What's what's that? No, walk tell, you through which tell, one? Tell me about your garden. <laughs> you want me to describe it? Yeah, uh, I do. In some sense, I do. Well, uh, okay. Uh, we 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 bought a pre- piece of property about uh, six years ago at the foot of the Blue Ridge, um, in um, North Central uh, Virginia. Uh, it it is a piece of property that naturally slopes down toward. Um, Hungry Run, which is a you know, stream at the bottom of the property, it's about five acres. Um, when 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 the house was when the house was being built, uh, I had I come in with a backhoe who was an artist with it, a sculptor really, and what he did in the back of my of the house, which is a an old fashioned. Um, Looks like a Cape Cod with three, uh, with three dormers coming out, and a big, big front porch with the pillars. You know, um, not a big house, but but um, suits suits the uh, history mm. and landscape, uh, in my view. I mean, that's what's so sad about so much of modern architecture and how the homes that are being built today. Mm-hmm. Um, no sense of somebody's got them graphed out somewhere. No sense, no respect for the the lay of the land or the the rolling hill or the the flatness of it, no respect for what, whatever it is. Um, well, we tried to work with the land, although we had to do, we had to have him come in and basically what he did was is is grade down the back so that there's a kind of rolling terracing going down into ultimately into a meadow, and then behind the meadow there's a scarf of woods, young trees, uh, uh, relatively young trees. Um, has maybe 200 feet depth, and then you, you're at the border of my pro- property, which is Hungry Run at the back. Um, and so he having done that, I, I began, even uh, as the house was being built, to plant um, my perennial beds um, on, on, these, on, these terraced, on the terraced property, and down below it uh, to put my uh, kitchen garden uh, uh, vegetable garden, fairly large, um, mm-hmm. but um, the vegetable garden itself is uh, is deep dug and um, in various shapes, you know. So we have triangular beds and square beds and circular beds, you know, mm-hmm. and paths that are going through them. And and so um, it, uh, 
what I've learned over the years in, in, in just vegetable gardening is, is that a vegetable garden can be just as beautiful and rewarding to the eye and the smell as a, hmm. as a flower garden. But anyhow, uh, so you start with the three levels of, uh, of uh, free-flowing but terraced uh, uh, perennial beds with some, uh, some mix of uh, uh, annuals in there to keep the color up. And, and, and lots of shrubs and tall grasses mixed in, flowering shrubs and tall grasses mixed in. Well, it's rather large. I mean, the largest bed on the top terrace is probably about 65 feet by 20 feet. And there are these other free-floating beds. Some are um, elongated and so forth and so on. And there's paths uh, crisscrossing them. Mm. So it's it's a rather lot of... There's a lot of garden there. Right. And you moved... You had a, an extensive garden in your home before in, in Reisterstown, Maryland. Reisterstown, Maryland, you yes. Moved, you moved into this house during Holy Week. Yes. <clears throat> and you that moved to the planned. garden, too, right? Or you moved part huh? of the garden? You moved part of... You, oh, yes, you took I brought a my, lot of the garden with you. Yes, I did. Um, um, we'd actually moved into my brother-in-law's house. Um, He's an angel to have had us as long as as, mm-hmm. as it ended up. But um, yes, w- when we when we moved from Reisterstown to my brother-in-law's, I um, filled up a a small truck, rented truck just with um, plants. Um, and as I and as I record in in, in <coughs> one of the pieces in the in the fragrance of God, I I assumed that some people might have thought that was profligate and quite silly, but. <laughs> But I took the garden with me, not only because uh, plants can be expensive, but because there were memories attached to mm. to a number of these uh, plants. The rhubarb that came from my grandfather's garden, that went to my father's garden, that went with me from one house to another, mm. uh, I brought uh, to Virginia with me, back to Virginia with me. Um, right. Other 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 fruits and other flowering plants that uh, were given to me by certain people or or, or 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 hold memories that take me back to my my childhood experience even or remind me of people who gardened that I knew as a child particularly you know and when you write about um the garden and again this the beginning of of the christian story um of adam and the garden which begins in a garden and 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 even again thinking about easter and Christ as the new Adam. I mean, I feel like that story is very present to you in your garden. And you um, often cite Armenian apocryphal Adam literature that also yes. informs your thinking about that. I mean, that's quite intriguing. I'd, I'd like for you to just tell me a little bit about that and, and how that also maybe shapes your mm, religious understanding of of what happens there differently. Yes, well, particularly um, in two of the essays uh, or reflections in, in in the fragrance of God, that's true. That the last one, the Re- Resurrection Garden, um, yeah, there is one of those stories told. Um, th- that apocryphal literature uh, you find it uh, in 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 some of the uh, ancient tongues. Uh, um, it, it 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 is still remembered. Liturgically, you have echoes of it. Um, when I say apocryphal, we mean that it's stories that really are, in one sense, interpreting and trying to imagine what more there was, say, that was going on right. 
in in the garden or what happened when Adam and Eve were expelled and where to, to whence were they expelled and how did they feel about that <laughs> this is um th- this is true of jewish uh, yes it uh, sounds like it's a bit like midrash yes mm-hmm. uh, it is a midrash mm-hmm. and in fact um while i'm not an expert on this i i assume that some of this apocryphal literature takes up themes directly from what was known by the early church of of this midrash or this uh, so it was really picking up um jewish interpretation and well, stories I, I, in midrash I, I, my, that's my 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 guess okay. absolutely okay. yeah um in any case it's in the same style mm-hmm. um and you find it particularly among the ancient churches uh, in in the syriac for example you're going to find the similar stories um and 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 those stories can be wonderful they're they're wonderfully poetic and and um bring great feeling into uh one's experience of of the scripture themselves so um i i um felt it was natural to in, incorporate that particularly the apocryphal literature about adam and eve when they're uh when they're expelled and and their memories of the garden and that that kind of story re- uh is informative and reminds me and is comforting of the fact that I feel the same way in the garden, you know, that my garden isn't perfect either. I mean, it's, mm. I labor here and I would like it to be paradise, but, but it's not. But maybe that maybe some of paradise is inside of my garden. Mm. Now, you know, my fav my favorite of all the, the early church, uh, patristic writers, uh, and it's pretty clear from what you see in the fragrance of God in Inheriting Paradise, is Ephraim the Syrian, who lived mm-hmm. in the 4th century, who was um, wrote mostly hymns, okay. uh, incredible hymns, uh, that are very much like this apocryphal literature, and it's so rich and and um, so uh, colorful, um, and, and very uh, unlike... <laughs> contemporary modern academic theology, uh, which in my view is so dry and in, in many ways so impoverished because it's impoverished of metaphor. Hmm. Well, is there a, a passage or or are there some words of Ephraim the Syrian that come to mind? I mean, I know I can find that in the book and we can actually put it into, the, we can produce it into the program, but is there something special? Uh, you that mean can, that I've memorized? I or that you're, uh, you're thinking of or some idea that comes from him his writing well in in, in this well for example the the notion that paradise is still there we don't see it but mm. we we some of some of its fragrance wafts into my garden mm. um he expresses it just that way okay um it's it's, it's not entirely gone paradise it's there are pieces we, we experience it in this fallen world as as well. Yeah, that's you that, know what's that, kind of interesting to me. So when I hear when I see you writing about the fall, and you you just said that maybe some of this ancient Armenian apocryphal literature was taken from Jewish tradition or was a an interpretation of that, which would make sense. And I also I do hear this theme coming through. Um, I think. For in in Jewish theology, there's not so much the 
fall as the exile from the garden. Hmm. And and I also mm-hmm. hear that sense in you, that experience in your garden. Yeah, yeah so, well, I think uh, that's quite right, mm-hmm. exile. I mean, that I think that's an early experience of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it has to um, do with, with, with the fact that the early church was persecuted also. I mean, they're, well, you know, I mean, you can't stay in Jerusalem or whatever. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I'm just speculating. I mean, in, in, in terms of my own Armenian identity, obviously, it's the fact that most of, so much of our Armenia is in diaspora yes. and is, has been in exile one century after another for one reason or another. But in, in modern life, certainly, that holds true. Mm-hmm. Right, I mean, and, exile. And um, it's probably working on me quite unconsciously. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first time I ever stepped foot in Armenia. It was next to a mystical experience. I arrived early, early in the morning as the the sun was coming up. I'd flown in from Moscow, and I felt as if I'd landed on a different planet. Maybe it was just the climate or something, but there was something else going on inside of me. I've never had that quite that experience again going back to Armenia, but that first time, I, I don't mean to make too much of it, mm-hmm. or collective uh, memory or whatever it might be, but... um yeah, it was like I returned home. I'd never been there. Mm. How old were you when you first went there? Ah, uh, forty. Huh. About forty years old. But I mean, was it was it just the feeling that you had standing there, or was it was it what you saw and heard and smelled? Around well, it was everything. Yes, it was what I saw and heard. There were a few people around. They all looked like me, <laughs> okay. or, I looked like, or I looked like them. Right. They were speaking a, a language that. Um, I heard less and less and spoke less and less into adulthood. Um, there was a certain carriage of the people, the way they walk and talk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's why Americans are so easy to it. We think, we think we're the, the, the whole world. So when we go someplace else and people can pick us out, it's not just the clothing we wear. We, I think people attribute it to that. I think it's the way we move also. Right. But what was it that made you think about coming to Armenia for the first time and thinking about the fall and the garden and exile? Was it that theme of exile? I mean, is that another way in which some of these large themes of Christianity are made real in in your life? Well, I suppose I suppose there's well, there was every bit of that in it. But remember, when I arrived in Armenia in 1990 for the first time, um, it was not long after the. Uh, the earthquake right, of uh, 18, December 1988. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to visit. And another reason was um, that uh, uh, there was much turmoil at that time. Even, bef- even before the uh, Baltic states began to rise up, Armenia had partly pushed, partly because of the threat, because of the Nagorno-Karabakh issue that mm-hmm. prop piece of property that was put into Azerbaijan by, by uh, I believe it was, uh, it was Lenin at the time, or Stalin, really, in, in, in order to, to reduce the size of Armenia as much as he could. And after all, Stalin was a Georgian. He knew what Armenians were about. Okay. They were going to want to keep every bit of the, that historic land that they could, and he, he didn't want them to grow too big. So um, there was that issue and, 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 and uh, the, the general glasnost at the time that was being absorbed in Armenia and articulated in, in ways that were quite bold. And my grandparents, who had um, 
lived for the day when um, Armenia would be a free and independent nation. All of that mm. brought me back to Armenia in 1990 and 91. And, um, you know, as dramatically and poignantly as as any as any group, I, I suppose Armenian Orthodox Christians have lived these great themes of suffering and resurrection that um, that are in the Easter story at this time of year. Well, certainly in in in, in modern times, I mean, yes, but you know, I I I, I leave you free to articulate that. Uh, you, you, um, on the other hand. Um, we can be too exclusive about um, claiming that mm-hmm. for ourselves, but it it certainly is true. I mean, um, look, I mean, there's no question but that at least a million, if not a million and a half Armenians died in a matter of a few years around the time, time of the First World War, and that was half the Armenians in the world. It, um, that's incredible, and, it, you know... Um, mm. An, an enormous catastrophe, and it's had ramifications and reverberations into the fourth generation. But I mean, here's the hard wound. It's a great it's wound. A great you wound. grow up with it. It's passed on to you. Right. And okay. So here's what I want to ask you about. I mean, how that pushes at your theology, because it's when we began talking, you you spoke about about how you know the resurrection is happening now. It happens in worship. It happens in liturgy. And in Orthodox liturgy, there is this sense um, that the Church transfigures the world, and yet in Armenian experience, that contrast between what happens in liturgy and what has happened in the world repeatedly is very stark. Yes, I suppose that is stark. Yeah, and I mean, so um, talk to me about that. <laughs> well, uh, look, I mean, um, the human spirit is is, is uh, um, next to indomitable, in my view, Um um, and our and whatever that memory is of paradise that we have um, um, keeps us alive. Um, hmm. I think Arm- Armenians are blessed with a kind of imagination that is so closely, is so cosmic in a way. That it, um, it's it's true of the Middle East, not not just Christians. It seems to me Islam uh, expresses itself that way. It, um, also, it, it it it's particularly true of the the Middle East, um, and and so it's, is it not surprising that the Hebrew, ancient Hebrews produced the Psalms, you know, mm. um, or the Song of Solomon, you, you know. Mm. I mean, the, 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 these these works of great of, beauty. These <laughs> yes, and and um, off, uh, oftentimes uh, reflections of of those who have suffered or been in exile themselves, uh, enormous suffering and lengthy exile and removal from that place which 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 is inside of them and which they wish to return to. So um, I, I, there's no, nothing highly exclusive about this, but I, I do think in the case of Armenians, they have a treasury of... Um, of 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 poetry and hymnography. I mean, the the really the the, the theology of my church, more so than the Byzantines, it, it seems to me, uh, more like the Syrians, mm-hmm. um, is uh, is in its hymns. Um, <laughs> they're not just 
they're, they're, uh, from, from those who are would, would read those hymns that, that are not familiar w with the tradition would say, "Really, is that a hymn?" <laughs> it, it's it's because it's 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 so rich not only in metaphor but deep theologically mm -hmm. these hymns and they can go on for a long time and and we will be able to play some of those hymns and i i love that idea but you know I, and i i want to press you because i think <clears throat> sorry you know here's something you've written as a theologian about the easter events that you know that you see that history and nature are shot through with God's purpose and grace. Yes. And well, how look, does how does that how can that be expressed? How can that be true in within Armenian experience that we're well, talking you can about? build a garden most anywhere. Okay, I mean uh, you know go you go to the Middle East, not just Armenia, but certainly in Armenia. You go even into Yerevan in the in the back of these these uh, horrendous apartment houses. There'll be a little a plot with a. And, and, and inevitably you'll have an, a grape arbor and you'll have some fruit trees. Um, they've, they've, brought, they've brought the country, what, what, uh, what you see in the villages still, I mean, profound. I mean, it's beautiful to, to see um, how village life uh, uh, is oriented to the, to the land and to the seasons. I mean, it's a hard life, but um, I think people in the villages today in Armenia live better than the people in the city from mm -hmm. my point of view. So I think you're uh, saying it's that... a very hard life. Mm -hmm. But you you can you can create a garden most anyway and one of the th anywhere and one of the things I wanted to say was is that if I remember the church I also remember the gardens of my my great aunts and uncles and of of people I called uncle or uncle or aunt that who weren't uncle or aunt but mm. they were Armenian that whose ho homes they visited and in every case they wanted to show you the garden. I mean that's that was obligatory. You 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 might go inside and be greeted, but then you go right outside and go into the garden. And I can remember this over and over again. Now, um, why were they building these gardens? Was it just simply because um, because they they wanted the fresh fruit? I I don't think so ultimately. But I was too too young to ask those survivors, and the, and these many of these were the survivors of of the genocide. Mm -hmm. Um, why they were doing this? <laughs> what is your uh, answer to that question now? I, uh, well, you know, I have my suspicions. I, I, I think that they were in part bringing part of the old country over with them. There, there were memories of the garden that they had. I, I think that uh, also the the garden was a place where th things uh, came to life. You mm -hmm. know, it mm -hmm. it was in, in point of fact a reaffirmation of life and. And uh, 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 something to sustain faith, hope, and and, and to go on living. Mm -hmm. uh, I, there's no question about that. It's just it's very closely related to the to the other phenomenon, which which I think other ethnic groups could probably uh, could pro probably say, well, we had something similar going, but they were expelled or in exile too. I mean, mm -hmm. everybody comes to America for these sorts of reasons. Um, but it was that you got fed. I mean. It wasn't you. You could not. You had to open your mouth, hmm. and and be fed. I mean, that was, and what was that about? That was about look. You know, you're not going to starve like, like, my parents did or I did in in uh, in the desert or in the wilderness uh, and, on the death marches and or whatever it, it might have been. Is the answer to that question about how um, 
history and nature seem shot through with God's purpose and grace is that that is constantly recreated in, in the midst of and despite and after these experiences of Well, remember the story I told about uh, uh, one, one particular priest who led his people out of the, uh, the men out of the, of the village, uh, and um, they, they had n- no bread or wine, certainly, and, and so, um, but they were going to hold the Eucharistic uh, com- uh, commemoration, and, and, and they ate the, the dirt. Hmm. I mean, from earth to earth, um, and 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 he said this cursed earth, but it is you know, but it's blessed. Hmm. That can be blessed. The curse can turn to a blessing. It, uh, the earth does sustain us, and we are of the earth. And so there's a lot to be read out of what that action was all about. Uh, mm-hmm. These men were being were probably going to die, uh, either marched to death or shot. Right. Um, but. Um, they were, they were going to stop and do this with this priest, and he was going to do it. And I'm wanting you to put a point on that. A theolo- I'm wanting you to say what that means for you theologically, how that informs your theology, how that informs your experience of the Easter story. Well, I'm, I, what, I'm, uh, what I'm saying is, is that the resurrection is alive in the faith of those who, who are with us presently and have been in the past. Mm-hmm. That's what I, I, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the resurrection has been with us even before it happened. <laughs> There's that. I mean, after all, nonlinear I mean, sense af- of time. Huh? There's that nonlinear orthodox sense. Absolutely. Of time, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, who is who is Jesus Christ? He's the divine Word, the uh, the preexistent Word of God. He is the Lamb, who has been slain from the found, uh, from the foundation of the earth, which is to say that it's all very present. You, yeah, and you yeah. you do also make this point in your garden about time, about be, you know beginnings and endings, and the temporal and the eternal, yes. and the relationship between between those being so clear. Yeah, I, say, I suppose I say it in many places. Mm-hmm. I I don't know what what place you're thinking of in, yeah, well, in particular, but that's yes, I do say it. I say it through, uh, not, 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 not discursively so much as mm-hmm. uh, through the presentation of, um, of images and uh, the, 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 re- the telling of, 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 of my, my movement mm-hmm. in, the, in the garden or my relationship to certain things in the garden. Tell me one of those stories, just one of those stories, maybe to end uh, for someone who hasn't read wh- the book. Well, uh, uh, there, there's one story of the f- uh, fact that I um, I found in the woods in 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 in, in Maryland um, the the, uh, the the wildflower. Oh well, wait a minute. We got to start all over again because I'm 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 going blank on what it was, which flower it was the. Okay, uh, it's all right. The the, the blood blood root. Uh, that's right. It was the blood root. I think yes. There's a the wildflower. Uh, to, to, to answer your question, um, the bloodroot flower uh, blooms very early uh, in the spring, um, it, around the time of Lent and Easter, depending on when Easter falls. Um, I found a grove of these in, in, a, in a wooded area not far from my home in Reisterstown, Maryland, and I, and I transplanted them 
by an oak tree in a partially shaded uh, part of my yard in, in Reisterstown, uh, where there is also there was also a slate path leading out toward um, toward my vegetable garden. And um, my experience of the first blooming, the first time that those transplant bloomed, I'll re really quite never forget. Um, the reason why it's called a blood root is because the, the flower, uh, the, the root itself, um, if, you, if, you, if you press it and break it, you'll get a, uh, a red a dye. It can be used as a, as a dye, mm. but the the bloom itself only lasts a very uh, a day. Um, but it it comes out of this, uh, as I described it, out of the sepulcher of the earth, and what it leaves is these sort of heart shaped flowers, uh, <laughs> uh, heart shaped uh, leaves, um, and uh, that that is. That is a microcosm of resurrection hmm. f for me. Um, hmm. I I can I can even um, I have a wild imagination. You know, I mean, I've described I've described uh, the stakes uh, in my in my vegetable garden in the winter time um, as 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 crosses on which bodies are draped. Hmm. Hmm. You know. Um, I don't mean that in a gory sense, but I see crosses in trees, okay. or or in the geese flying in in the air. Right. Uh, in 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 the formation of what a V, a sign of victory. Um, the geese in the in the sky remind me of the crosses that pilgrims have uh, have 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 uh, carved into um, uh, ancient Christian sites, which. If any, if anyone goes to ancient Christmas sites, you'll often find this: that uh, the pilgrims have carved little crosses into, mm -hmm. and, 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 and there's there's hundreds of these in in certain locations. Well, the geese remind me of that. The geese remind me of the cross. I think there are signs of the cross in all over creation. Mm. I mean, but that look. I mean, um, how do you account for that? Well, I, clearly we ha we've forgotten. We've forgotten paradise. We forget God, and that's why I think we have Scripture okay. <laughs> to remind and you, us. And you mean the Scripture that is written down in the Scripture of nature? Yes, absolutely. I I, as again, I, again, I think that we cannot do without one or the other. Look, we 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 have to live somewhere, and that's the world that we live in. And that that world uh, um, is uh, the Creator is imprinted and has imprinted Himself and so many ways in, into that world. But we can be very blind t to, the, to that imprint. Mm. Um, and so God has revealed himself through the prophets and, and ultimately through Jesus Christ. And, and, and this has been recorded so that we do remember. And then, then the world uh, again can be an epiphany f for us. Now, I, I don't say that that um, without Scripture, um, there cannot be a sense of a divine that is evoked by nature or or by the creation. Mm -hmm. I prefer the word creation. I think it's there's evidence of that throughout human experience, but it's brought to a point by um, the revelation that is ours as as, as Christians mm -hmm. and is shared by uh, Jews and, and Muslims. Mm -hmm.
and for you it's it's, part of it and you've been i mean for you it it takes place within this very rich and long tradition that i think um wonderfully brings together the large ideas and earthly earthy experience (laughs) yeah well, is there? I feel like there's a lot more we could talk about. I wonder if there's anything else you'd want to say. I think we've ended in a good place. But is there anything I didn't ask you, or anything else you wanted to say? Oh no! I mean, there's there's so much there. I know, uh, I know. How 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 much of this is is, is actually going to be? Well, we we you know we have a real conversation, and it's not linear, and that's okay. And we will it it turns into an hour of radio. Uh-huh. And so we've been on the phone for... We've been on the phone, and we will edit it down, and I will... You know, there's a lot of... Um, well, look at your notes. Is there anything... I mean, if you want to. I mean, is there anything else that... Uh, that I have a lot recall? in my notes. I have a lot in my notes. I, um, I, What we didn't get to talk about was your idea of worship as ethics, seeing oh, yeah. worship as ethics, which I think, again, is a, a distinctly um, orthodox way to think about ethics and yes. um and I think it's a huge topic. Yeah, mm. it's it, I don't think that That's we well, can't get in. I can talk about it, but yeah. I think that that the conversation we've had uh has its own mm-hmm. momentum, yes. its own yes. own direction and I think we pretty much covered yeah. covered that. Yeah. I, the, there may be a moment or two in some of my writing that that you'd want to pick out mm-hmm. but um mm-hmm. No, I think this has been wonderful and I I thank you for taking the time, and I I know that my producer will want to ask you about music. Um, mm. We'd love for you to suggest some pieces of music, and we will be able to lay those in. You know, interesting. So, yeah. well, um, we'll have to work with. I'll have to work with him on that. Yes, I, I, I'd probably contact uh, um, one of our dioceses um, and and see whether they can be of help in particular. Okay. Uh, yeah, we'll there. work on that. Uh, maybe by email and uh, anything else, Mitch? No. Okay. I think we need to finish. Thank you again. Okay. It's great to talk to you again. Yes, I hope I get to see you. I'm, 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 I'm not sure that it'll be in June, but okay. um, if you're ever out this way, let me know. Okay. Yeah, right. I haven't been out there for years. So. Well, if you come to college, yeah. I sort of miss it. I wish I could yeah, come. It's a I, I may still make it. We'll mm-hmm. see. All okay. Right. Thank you so God much. God bless. Yeah, you All too. All right. You bet. Bye bye.